struggled all week with how to start this sermon. I didn't know how I would preach to people at 8 o'clock and Linda Mitchell at 10. (laughs) I didn't know what it would feel like to step into this pulpit for the first time in 58 Sundays to see people sitting in the pews. And as I wrote this on Thursday, I still had no idea, but I can tell you that it made my heart glad at 8 o'clock this morning. It's been way too long, and while I can't say that I've missed the 5 a.m. alarm clock, I have certainly missed our Christchurch family. I look forward to May the 2nd when, God willing, we'll be able to restart the 10 o'clock service as well. The prospect of returning to church in the pews this week has been an opportunity for me to look back over the last 13 months and think about what we've learned, how it's felt and what we might take with us into the future. Surprisingly, I have found myself profoundly grateful for the experience of the last year. I'm wondering if maybe you are feeling the same. I'm grateful that our girls got to be kids for most of 2020. Riding their scooters, jumping on the trampoline, and using their imaginations as the world around them shut down. I'm grateful for flexible work schedules, for polo shirts, and for strong Wi-Fi. I'm grateful for amazing teammates in our staff and parish leaders who have worked harder than you can imagine to make sure that Christchurch continued to live out its mission despite all kinds of hardship. I'm grateful for each of you, for your patience, support, And witness to what God is doing in the world, even in the midst of unprecedented challenges. In doing so, you have lived into the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples in our gospel lesson this morning. Serving as witnesses to the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs it. Now we might be two weeks away from Easter, but our lesson this morning takes place still on that first Easter day. In Luke's gospel, it has already been a long day. It started just before dawn when Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and some other women gathered the spices and ointments they needed to give Jesus a proper burial after he was hastily laid in a tomb on Friday afternoon. At sunup, they found the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. They were met by two men dressed in white who asked them one of the most profound questions in all of Scripture. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. Christ is risen. Quickly, the women departed and returned to the upper room where they found the 11 remaining apostles And another small group of disciples who, apart from Peter, dismissed the word of the women as an idle tale. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb and found it empty. He didn't know what to do, and so he just went home. At some point, we find out later that Jesus did appear to Peter, maybe over his morning cup of coffee as he scrolled mindlessly through his Facebook feed. At least two of the disciples were so dismayed by the events of the last three days 
that they decided to give up, to go home and see if they could get their jobs back in Emmaus. Just before our lesson for today is the well-known story of Jesus meeting those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Downtrodden, they plodded along the seven-mile journey, discussing with sadness all that had taken place. We thought, we really thought that he was the Messiah. He would be the one to redeem Israel. He was a prophet, mighty in power and word and deed. God was with him, but they killed him. And now his body is gone and hope is lost. Jesus opened their minds to the scriptures and how everything that had been written by Moses and the prophets led straight to the cross. But it wasn't until they sat down at the table together and Jesus broke bread with them that their eyes were opened to see him in his resurrected body, their, their rabbi, their messiah, and their Lord. He then disappeared from their eyes and they took off, running back to Jerusalem where they met the rest of the group and a cadre of women still in the upper rooms sharing stories about the day and wondering what it all meant. We've seen him, the two exclaimed. So has Peter, the crowd responded. And just then, Jesus entered the room. Shalom. Peace be with you. Jesus spoke peace to the small crowd that had no peace within it. Luke tells us that they were startled and terrified. The same word that he used to describe what the shepherds felt watching their flock by night on that first Christmas. Jesus speaks peace into the midst of chaos and passes then the standard tests to prove that he was not a ghost in antiquity. First, they checked his extremities where bones would be obvious, his hands and his feet, and they found them intact, albeit scarred. Next, the disciples needed to make sure that Jesus wasn't just sort of caspering around, that his feet were planted firmly on the ground, which they were. Finally, everyone knows that ghosts can't eat food. So when he asked for and consumed a piece of broiled fish, he passed the final test. What they were witnessing wasn't a specter or a group hallucination or a hopeful vision built upon stress and grief, but the actual flesh and blood of Jesus who had been crucified and died three days earlier. Even as they grew joyful that it was in fact Jesus in their midst, they were still amazed and in disbelief that this could possibly be true. So for the second time on Easter, Jesus opened up the scriptures to remind them yet again that the Messiah, that he would die and rise again, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to the whole world in his name. And then he commissioned them as witnesses to all these things. They were empowered to tell the good news of Jesus Christ despite the hardship of the previous three days. 
as inheritors of that apostolic tradition, you and I are called to be witnesses of the ongoing work of God in the world. As such, our work is twofold. Proclaiming the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The first task is summed up in 1 Peter 3. If someone asks you about your hope, always be ready to explain it. This past year has been difficult on all of us. But from where I stand, I've seen amazing signs of hope along the way. That so many of you continue to give to the mission of this congregation was a sign of hope. That someday we will be back together doing the work that God has called us to do. That so many of you signed up for Zoom calls, Facebook Live, YouTube and podcasts was a sign of hope that despite all kinds of hardships, you are committed to growing your faith. That so many of you sent notes, emails, and text messages of encouragement and prayer is a sign of hope that we are connected even when we are apart. There are stories of hope to be told no matter how crummy the last 13 months have been. And as Christians, we are called to share them. The second task isn't quite as easy. Proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sin means calling sin, sin. Both in our own lives and in the world in which we live. And then trusting in God's forgiveness. To take our calling seriously, we must be willing to take stock of the places in our own lives where, where relationships are broken, both with God and our fellow human beings. In the wider world, as Christians commissioned by Jesus to preach repentance, we must be willing to call out systems of oppression like gun violence, xenophobia, white supremacy, and police brutality, which keep the kingdom of God from being fully realized here on earth. God is eager to forgive, but we must be willing to repent, to change our course, to move toward wholeness. Your witness of hope over the last year has been a gift. As we move into this next phase of pandemic life, I invite you to consider how you might proclaim repentance, forgiveness, and the good news of the resurrection of our Lord to a world that desperately needs it. It has been a long road, but our work is just beginning. And I look forward to the journey. Amen.